to the book of Acts. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, you certainly could use uh, the insert to your bulletin, which contains the passage this morning uh, that we'll be looking at. <coughs> and I encourage you to follow along as we read and then as we uh, look at uh, God's Word together this morning. Uh, it's been a long time uh, since we've been in the book of Acts, and we return once again to a study that we began uh, way back. It's hard to believe I had to look it up. Uh, way back in September of 2013 is when we first opened up the book of Acts. We took quite a few breaks last year, uh, but I am confident, fairly confident, that we are going to finish the book of Acts uh, this year, and uh, hopefully uh, soon. It's been a great study for us as a church. It's a, it's a book of history. Uh, for those of you who haven't been part of this study, it's been uh, a book of history, the history of the early church. But it's a history that is like no other. It's a history that is alive. And I don't mean it's a history that's alive just in the sense that your history told you that all history is alive and we need to learn from it. We need to see the mistakes of the past and not duplicate them in the present and all that stuff. No, I mean it's a history that's alive in the sense that it's God's Word. It's God's Word. And the Holy Spirit has given this to His church. He has preserved it generations upon generations. And this Word and this book and, and these chapters... They rebuke and they correct and they train us, God's people, in righteousness. And so I remind you of what I know so many of you hold dear and know to be true, but I remind you again that this is not just some mere recounting, but this is the living Word of God, and that's why we give our attention to it like no other. Before I read the book of Acts, or uh, at least our passage for this morning, I want to situate us again uh, where we are in the story. It's been a long time, and I'm sure uh, many of you are struggling to remember, yeah, exactly where were we in this story of the early church? Well, we had been most recently shadowing the Apostle Paul as the Apostle Paul journeyed all around the ancient world on what was known as his second missionary journey. And in fact, when we left him last, which was beginning in November of last year is when we last were in the book of Acts, uh, the Apostle Paul was on his last major stop in his second missionary journey in the city of Corinth, in the ancient city of Corinth. And we focused on verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18. You can look at it there if you have your Bibles open and refresh your memory. It was there that the Lord reminded Paul that I am with you. That all this stuff you're going through, don't forget that I am with you. And that I have people in this city. And that the work of salvation is mine alone. And so press on. And, and, and we recall, you'll recall that we looked at and we were encouraged by how that affected Paul. It, it renewed his commitment to his mission. And he ended up staying there. For, for a longer period of time than he had stayed in any other city. He stayed there for 18 months, and he made a Nazarite vow, seemingly renewed discipline to his calling and God's work 
in the world in spreading this good news of Jesus. And, and that's where we were, and that brings us to today's passage, chapter 18, verse 22. The passage for today begins with the Apostle Paul returning to the original city that he began in. The original city, the original church that sent Paul and Barnabas at the time on his original mission, and that was the city of Antioch. Not Pisidia in Antioch, but Syria. The Antioch in Syria. He's not going to stay there long, but he's going to launch out, as we're going to see in just a moment, on his third and last missionary journey, and he's just going to head due west. And so that's kind of where we are in the story. We're still following Paul, but Luke's going to start with Paul. He's going to end with Paul today, but he's going to give us a little snapshot of something that's happening outside of Paul in Ephesus before Paul gets there. And so listen as I read uh, God's Word, Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 22 and reading all the way down through 19. 10. Luke, the historian, says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught the things, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that, showing by the scriptures that Jesus, that Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is just a side note, but I love how our church savors that chorus. Uh, I've been in other churches that just kind of clip through that thing. Let's just get through that thing. But we, uh, 
We linger long, which I like. And uh, so keep it up. Wow, what a passage. Acts 18 and 19. What is going on here? And one of the questions for us to ask when we read a passage like this, one of the questions I ask when I come to a passage like this in my study is, why in the world does Luke give us these accounts? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. There are a lot of events that happened in the early church that we don't know about. But these are the ones that Luke has chosen by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to record for us and to leave for us his church. I think it could be answered, that question, in probably several different ways. But as I have studied and wrestled, and I mean wrestled this week, with how to preach this text, I want us to focus on two things. Two things that I think uh, God wants to remind His people of this morning. The first is a historical and theological point, and the second is more a practical application that flows from the first. And, and the first one is this. God is building and nurturing one church. God is building and nurturing one church. Boston Strong, Seahawks Pride, Made in America. These are all phrases that resound to us. We are built, I think. It's second nature for us to have territorial pride. The Lord reminds us this morning, here in the book of Acts, that He's not interested in territorial pride in the church. He's not interested in having a church of Paul, a church of Apollos, a church in Ephesus. He's building one church. One church under Jesus. Not one nation under God. That's a blessing, but that's not what God's doing. One church under Jesus. And we confess this almost every Sunday when we uh, say the Apostles' Creed as we confess our faith before we come to the table. What do we say? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And maybe there's some confusion in your mind when we say that word Catholic. Are we saying Roman Catholic? Are we differentiating between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church? No, that's not what we're doing. When we say Catholic, all we're saying is universal. One church. We believe in one church. Under Jesus. And I know that this is not a new point for you to hear. It's not a new point from the book of Acts. This is one that Luke has returned to again and again. It's one that we can't get away from. Luke wants to remind us and encourage us with God's work in the past, God's work in the present, and what that means for God's work in the future. And that's why I think this book is so good for us as a church. It keeps centering us. It keeps reminding us. It keeps encouraging us of what our work is as the people of God and what God is doing. And especially as the cultural tide swells, the cultural tide of rebellion swells in our world. I mean, I think of the passage a couple weeks ago, uh, Psalm 13. How long, how long will you forget us? 
And we talked about how we could listen to that corporately. We could listen to that as we see the evil around us and we can say, wow, it's hopeless. God reminds his people this morning, no, I am building my church. I am building one church. And as, as Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's the hope we have. And the, the foundation for that church is being poured here in the book of Acts. And even here in this passage. And, and that's the first thing I want us to see is that God is building one church. He's building and nurturing one church. And, and, and we first see him doing this strategically. We see him doing this strategically. It's no mistake that Luke gives us these two accounts of the early church, <coughs> these two accounts of trial in the early church that are happening in the same city, the city of Ephesus. The Ephesus at that time in the ancient world was a thriving commercial port. It was a crossroads of travel and trade and ideas. This made Ephesus a strategic place for ministry, a valuable and important place for the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus and the Church of Jesus to be firmly planted as an outpost as those go from the city to proclaim the good news. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, written to this church later, one of my favorite books. And Paul will say to that church in Ephesians chapter 1, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, and I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. God is building His church strategically through the city of Ephesus. And so when these different, let's just call them uh, for now, deficiencies pop up in the church. The Lord is quick to put in place the means by which those deficiencies can be addressed. He's building. He's nurturing His church. And at this time, the church needed particular care. I hope I don't have to tell you this morning that we sit here standing, figuratively so, on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Shoulders of the early church. Shoulders of the minds and the passion and the courage of those in the Reformation. And we stand upon this sure revelation. We have Bibles coming out of our ears. And we stand on this. But, but in this time and place, in this history, in the first century, for Apollos and for these twelve men in Ephesus, it just, they, it just wasn't the case. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the law and the prophets, yes. And if they were Jews, they knew the law and the prophets. And they had the stories circulating about John the Baptist and about what he preached and, and what he did. And maybe they even, maybe they even had heard him and, and met him face to face. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is there was still much for these people to figure out about who God was, about who Jesus was, about what that meant for them, about what the future held for them. 
There are many ideas that were temptations for the church to go in this direction or, or that direction. And yet God wants to build one church. There is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He will write later to this same church. And so through the, these stories, I think God is just reminding us and saying us, I'm building my church. I'm doing it strategically. I'm doing it carefully. And I'm doing it through godly leadership. That's the second thing under this first point. Not just is God building His church strategically, He's building it through godly leadership. And we'll get into the specifics of, of what exactly was going on in the church in just a moment. But I want you to notice, specifically in the case of Apollos, how he was corrected and who corrected him. And then how did he respond? Luke tells us a bunch about Apollos, this, this man who... Uh, came on the scene in Ephesus. He was from a Jewish family in Egypt, specifically Alexandria. Alexandria was, was a well-known, uh, well-renowned, educational stronghold of the ancient world. The largest library of the ancient world was in Alexandria. So someone comes out of Alexandria, you think of someone coming out of Cambridge or something. Ooh, they're smart. And indeed, Apollos was smart. He was competent. He was eloquent. He was passionate. He was gifted. And he knew the Word. And so he comes into Ephesus and he proclaims what he knows. And Priscilla and Aquila, former companions of Paul, who had traveled with Paul, and Paul left them in the city, they're kind of standing at the back and they're listening to this guy. Wow. He, he is passionate. But something's missing. Something's missing in what he's saying. And so what do they do? What do they do? Do they make this, this, this public scene and, and call him out and, and rebuke him? No. Wise Priscilla and Aquila, this godly couple, they, they pull Apollos aside. They see the potential in this man. And they say, listen, you don't have the whole story. Let, let's... Let us give you the whole story. And they tell him of the fullness of, of Jesus and, and what Jesus had done and what he had accomplished and the spirit that he had given. And, and how does Apollos respond? Did you just hear me preaching? I'm good. I don't need you. No, Apollos is teachable. Apollos is humble and he listens and, and how we need more teachable, gifted, eloquent people in the church. People who recognize that there's much to learn. And that we don't have our theology all straight. As proud as we Presbyterians are. If you don't expect to be corrected on anything when you get to heaven, you're wrong. There's something you got wrong. And yet here's Apollos being teachable. Here is Priscilla and Aquila being humble and gentle. God is building His church 
through the strategic placement of Ephesus, through the godly leadership that he has put in place there, through their humble submission to his word. And so really the first point this morning is just to rejoice in the strategy and the means that God has used long ago, some 2,000 years ago, to bring the gospel to your doorstep, to your family, to that coworker who shared the gospel with you. It came through this. And we give God thanks. We give God praise. And we rejoice that God will never, ever abandon His church. But He is building her. And He's nurturing her until He comes again to take us back with Him. The great thing to think about is the church of Jesus this morning. And it's the first thing that I think this difficult passage teaches us. And the second thing is this. There's, a, there's another thing that I think uniquely applies to us. And I try to sum it up in this second point as we work our way through the specifics of what's going on here. The second truth is this. Religion is not enough. You must know Jesus. Your religion is not enough. You must know, not just know about, you must know Jesus. I remember when I was a high school teacher for a couple years, you get to that point in the end of a unit, and there's like a review day before a big test, and the constant question from students is, do we have to know this for the test? Do we really have to know this? And of course, my cynical response is, no, I've just been blabbering up here for a whole semester. You don't have to know any of that stuff. Well, the fact of the matter is, there is something we have to know. But what do we have to know concerning God? What truths are foundational for us? There are things that the two groups here, which I'm kind of lumping them together, Apollos first in Ephesus, and then the group of 12 disciples in Ephesus later, there are things that they needed to know that they had not yet learned. And that's clear from this passage. Now there's some uncertainty. It's a tough passage. There's some uncertainty about whether Apollos and whether these 12 disciples in Ephesus, whether they were believers, whether they were saved, whether they knew the gospel enough to be called followers of Jesus. Some say that their deficient understanding of the things of God meant that they were almost Christians, but they weren't quite Christians. Others will say that even though they were lacking in their belief that they were indeed Christians. I don't think there's any way for us to know definitively whether Apollos or the twelve disciples had a full enough understanding of the gospel to be believers. I think, personally, that they were. But that fact is not a fact that that we need to be certain of to get Luke's point in, in including these stories. The bottom line is that for both Apollos and these 12 disciples in Ephesus, their theology was deficient. They were missing something. And that 
wasn't good. And what were they missing here in the early church? They were stuck anticipating the Messiah rather than understanding that the fullness of Jesus had already come. Now this gets a little thick, so hang on with me for just a few minutes as we work our way through this. Both Apollos and the Twelve, Luke tells us, only knew of what? They only knew of the baptism of John. Now John the Baptist, the one who came before the Messiah to prepare the way for him, preached and performed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We know that. We remember those stories. Locusts and honey and camel hair in the wilderness. He was a crazy dude. But he preached a baptism of repentance. And John baptizing Jews in the ancient world was a big deal. Why was it a big deal? Because the Jews didn't need baptism. The Jews were circumcised. The Jews had the law. They were God's people. They were marked in the covenant. But John had come on the scene and he had told the Jews, your religion is not enough. You need to repent of your sins. You need to cry out for forgiveness. You need to be baptized, symbolically washing that sin away. And you need to wait for the one who is coming who is greater than I. That was the baptism of John. That was the baptism of repentance. And this is where Apollos and the twelve disciples were stuck. They hadn't heard the rest of the story. They didn't realize that Jesus' work was done. That He had already left this earth. That He had given His Spirit in His stead that was now on earth in His people. And that's, a, that's an important point. That's an important point that the church needs to know. And so God orders that Priscilla and Aquila correct Apollos, and in time Paul will come and correct the disciples, teaching them the fullness of what has transpired. And, and what did they tell them? Something to the effect of, hey folks, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come and He has identified with His people. He has offered Himself for the sacrifice, as the sacrifice for sin. And we have His Spirit, and that Spirit is now the proof of that fact. So while John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, was your commitment, the baptism of Jesus is not so much your commitment, it is your identification, it is your union with all that Christ accomplished, with all that Jesus did. With the One who took judgment on Himself that you deserved. You see, John's baptism was just the tip of the iceberg. It was the preliminary acknowledgement that religion wasn't enough. Jesus' baptism, Jesus' work, in a sense, sealed the deal. Because it said that, yeah, religion's not enough. You need this. You need this cleansing. You need this Jesus. You need this sufficiency. And you need this salvation that is sealed by this Spirit. 
So baptism in Jesus was the outward sign of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus had promised would come. You see, that was what Apollos and the rest needed to understand. Repent and believe in the one God has sent. Know this Jesus. Receive His Spirit. The disciples of Ephesus needed the same thing. And so Paul came and baptized them in the name of Jesus. And what happened? They received the Spirit in fullness. And and they have their own kind of mini-Pentecost, we might say. Remember back at the beginning of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost. Tongues of fire. People speaking in languages that they didn't know or shouldn't know. And then it happened again in chapter 8 when the Gospel came to Samaria. And now it happens again in Ephesus. Your religion is not enough. You must know Jesus. Now, before we finish up, I would be remiss if I didn't just camp out a minute on this phenomenon that happens in Ephesus. Because there's a lot of confusion in the church over what is happening here. There are some in the church in what we would call Pentecostal circles who would want to say that because of what happens here in Ephesus with the twelve disciples, that that is what needs to happen to all believers. That we become believers in Jesus and then somewhere down the road we receive a second blessing when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in, in power and suddenly we have the Spirit and we're able to do these supernatural things like tongues and prophecy. We don't have time to spend a lot of time on this, but the simple thing I have to say is that's not what the Bible's teaching here. I mean, this was, we've already established, this was a unique time in the life of the church. The apostles were still on the scene. They were still doing incredible things and and doing signs and wonders and, and demonstrations of the Spirit's power. And we can't so easily just pick things up and transport them into our day and age and say this is the way things should be. The weight of Scripture actually teaches that when you come to Christ, when you repent and believe the Gospel, it's at that point that the Spirit is yours. Not some later time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's at your confession at your baptism, at your repentance that the Spirit comes and lives and resides and guides you. Well, as we finish up, what do we take away from this passage this morning? It's a difficult passage. I hope I've been clear. If I haven't, come talk to me. And I'll try to explain it better. Well, I think in addition to simply recognizing and rejoicing again in God's work at building and nurturing the church of Jesus, I want us as a church to rejoice in and to commit to knowing and understanding the true Gospel. Knowing, really knowing 
Jesus. I mean, there, there, there is a balance in the church that we need to fight for. There's a balance in, in following Jesus. Our salvation is not found in theology. It's not found in law. It's not found in religious practice or in American values or in principles for life. Nor is our salvation found in our experience or our feelings. Salvation is found in a person. Our hope is in knowing Jesus and in having His Spirit and, and living in that Spirit and being united to that Spirit. And I would encourage you as an individual or as a family, even today, or at the least this week, to read Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Just read it and, and think about it in light of the need to know His Spirit. And to live in that spirit. Well, you may be here and you may know a lot about Jesus, but my question to you this morning is do you know him? Do you know him? Have you recognized who he is? Has, have you rested in what he has done? Have you received his spirit that assures you of that faith, that has given you that faith? that will guarantee and take that faith to the very end. That's the good news of the Gospel. It's the good news that we need to grab on to. That we need to preach to ourselves every day. That we need to live out and proclaim when we get the chance as God continues to build His church for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your work in the world. Building one church united under Jesus. And although we, in our modern day, have witnessed the brokenness of our world and the brokenness that has resulted in the fracture of denominations and so many different fingers of the church, Father, may we recognize, may we strive for unity under the Gospel, under knowing Jesus, under being those who are indwelt by His Spirit and desiring to live in that Spirit. Father, may we be encouraged as we go from this place of Your faithfulness to Your church, of Your plan for her, for us, to continue to perfect us and present us blameless. And Father, I pray for those here this morning who are still searching and figuring out, and maybe much that came from my lips this morning was confusing. Spirit, I pray that You would give them eyes to understand and, and minds to comprehend the love of Jesus for them that they might begin there recognizing their need and their own brokenness and the sufficiency of who You have provided. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.